0: I have to admit that there are some portions of Scripture that, for me, uh, I've almost grown a little bit tired of, which I know that sounds like a really strange thing to say about the Word of God. Uh, But if I'm totally honest, as, as someone who's spent my entire life in the church, there are some things that I feel like I've heard over and over and over again, and it grows a little bit tiresome. And I think this text from First Corinthians 13 is one of those texts. In fact, it's maybe become even a, a tad cliche. Now, I can't uh, pass the buck or, or blame someone else for making me preach on this because, one, I had three different things to choose from this morning. Two, I chose the text for this Sunday. So it's, it's really on me. Now, this has become maybe a tad cliche for us because where do we hear this, uh, this reading from 1 Corinthians, chapter 13? Where do we hear this read all the time? Wedding, weddings. weddings, right? And so naturally, Paul must be talking about husbands and wives. Oddly enough, that might be one of the furthest things from his mind as he writes these words. Now, that's not to say that these words of love don't apply to husbands and wives. They absolutely do. And in fact, I think most of us, we read these words from 1 Corinthians 13 and we think to ourselves, man, I wish my marriage had a little bit more of this kind of love in it. But I think what can happen is we can attach this reading and these words from Paul only to husbands and wives. And we can limit it to only how spouses treat one another. And if we do that, I think we're letting ourselves off the hook a little bit too easily. Because when Paul writes this, and he calls the church to embrace this sort of love, he's not just talking about husbands and wives. He is talking about how we are called to embrace and to treat every single member of the body of Christ. And for that matter, these words should shape how we treat those who are even outside of the body of Christ. You see, when Paul writes this, and he writes this letter to the church in Corinth, things were not in very good shape. The church was in absolute Mess. It was completely divided against one another. People had started to separate themselves and, and form groups and attach themselves to certain teachers in the church. So there was no unity whatsoever. On top of that, you had Christians in lawsuits against one another, people coming to the Lord's Supper and getting drunk. And in addition to all of that, there were men in the congregation. Men using their freedom in Christ as an excuse to go and sleep with prostitutes. How's that for your introduction to a marriage sermon? (laughs) Things were bad. Things were a mess. But even in the face of all that, Paul notes in the very first chapter that the church in Corinth was lacking in no spiritual gift. And he even calls them immediately before he writes this to desire and seek after these gifts. But you see, the problem that they were facing was that their gifts that they had been given by God were becoming points of pride. They were becoming causes for jealousy. Instead of gifts to be used for the mission of God and for service to Christ and His church, Now I have to say, and and I think uh, Pastor Brad would agree with me, that I'm very glad that my first call was to Lamb of God Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington, and not uh, Wrath of God Community Church in Corinth, Greece. (laughs) I'm so glad I don't have to deal with the problems that Paul is addressing here. But the thing that just floors me each and every time that I read this letter is how Paul treats the members of this church. How Paul still addresses these wayward Christians as brothers and sisters. And in this text right here, in chapter 13, Paul calls them to embrace one simple thing. Love. He calls them to embrace love as a thing to overcome their divisions, as a thing to overcome their pride and their jealousy, they're called to embrace love. Here's what Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, Paul's pretty insistent here about what is the most central thing for the church. He says, look, I can have all kinds of gifts of language. I can even speak heavenly languages. I can have the gift of prophecy. I can have great wisdom and knowledge and and understand all of the mysteries of God. I can have the sort of faith that can move mountains. I can even be unbelievably generous. Even more than that, I could suffer martyrdom. But if I don't have love, it is all a waste. Spiritual gifts, those are all fine and good. But if they're not used in love, then none of it matters. I have to admit that I feel like Paul's almost a little naive here. It sounds like Paul has listened to maybe one too many Beatles albums and hasn't read enough church budgets. He hasn't been looking closely enough at the attendance record. Because the last time that I checked, love doesn't pay the bills. It doesn't keep the lights on. It doesn't put butts in the seats on Sunday morning. What is really so great about love that Paul would suggest it is the central thing, the absolute most important thing for the Corinthians to embrace? See, I think to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean by love? What kind of love is he talking about? And to answer that, I want to look to St. John. 1 John 3, 16. Now, I realize that Paul doesn't write these words. But since Paul and John are both apostles, they're both writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that they would agree with one another. Here's what John says love is. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love. In other words... If you want to know what love is, if you want a definition, listen up. I'm about to give it to you. By this we know love. That he, that is Christ, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What kind of love is Paul talking about? Paul's not talking about some sort of sappy, sentimental, romantic comedy kind of love. Paul is talking about a kind of love that is made known in a blood-soaked Son of God hanging on the cross, suffering and dying for you. If you want to know what love is, what it really is, it's made known in the one who gives up everything, even his own life, so that you could be brought back to God. Without this love, nothing else does matter. No amount of spiritual gifts, no amount of generosity, no amount of martyrdom would change the fact that we were lost in our sin. Our pride, our jealousy, our our envy and strife, that would be our end. But the Creator of the heavens and the earth has sent His Son into the world. To show you how much that he loves you. To show you how far he is willing to go to bring you back from sin and death. Without the love of the Son of God dwelling in us, nothing else matters. Can I get an amen? amen? But Paul's not done yet. He has more to say about this whole love thing. He says in verse 4, he starts talking about what love produces, how it's made known. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, Endures all things. You know, there's something unique about all these things that love produces the things like patience and and kindness, humility, rejoicing in the truth, things like faithfulness, hope, and, and endurance. Think about a time when you've had conflict in a relationship. It might be with, with your spouse or between a parent and a child, sibling, some other family member, maybe a, a friend or coworker, sometime that you have had conflict in your relationship. Has there ever been a time where boasting brought an end to that conflict? That it actually helped you achieve reconciliation? Has there ever been a time that arrogance or insisting on your own way brought repair to something that was broken? Has hatred or or resentment or, or irritability, has it ever brought healing to a relationship in your life? See, When I think of the times that I've had conflicts, and uh, particularly conflict with my wife, which she will assure you almost never happens. I mean, I'm sure that's what you're thinking. Man, being married to Marcus, that's just got to be easy living, right? (laughs) But when I think about the times that there's been conflicts and, and there's been arguments in our relationship. It always begins with with some sort of wrongdoing, admittedly, typically on my part. And so either I I fail to listen or I don't follow through on a task or or I just very poorly communicate my schedule and and expectations for a relationship. And usually what happens is, is when I'm confronted with that wrongdoing is I'll get defensive. And I will insist that my way was right. I'll insist that that I actually know better. And then suddenly, minutes later, I'll somehow be shocked that I'm in the midst of an argument. But without fail, the thing that always brings reconciliation, the thing that always brings healing... is when one of us humbly goes to the other, seeking forgiveness. When we set aside anger and resentment and irritability and embrace patience and kindness. See, there's something that, that marriage is teaching me. And I, and I say is teaching very intentionally because it has. I'm not there yet. It's not has taught. I'm I'm a slow learner. We're getting there. There's something that marriage is teaching me, and that is insisting on my own way does not bring healing to relationships. It didn't work for the church in Corinth. It doesn't work in marriage, and it won't work for the church either. You see, when we commit wrong against one another, we create this, this rift in our relationships. When we sin against each other, there's sort of this gulf that it creates in our relationship. And anger and, and hostility, resentment, irritability, jealousy, boasting, all that stuff, all that really does is it just widens the gulf. The only thing that can actually cross that gulf is love. The love that's made known in, in patience, and in kindness. Love that embraces humility. Love that's willing to bear all things. And even give up its willingness to be right. That can cross the gulf. And should that really surprise us? Should it really surprise us that the way for us to bring healing to our relationships is precisely the same way that God brought healing to us? When in our sin we created this chasm between us and God, He didn't stand on the other side of it and remind us how righteous He was. He didn't wait for us to to cross it or, or come to Him. In love, our God crossed the gulf. In that love that was incarnate in Jesus Christ. God crossed the gulf to bring healing to what was broken. Jesus is the very love of God made manifest. Right? Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus doesn't envy or boast. Jesus isn't arrogant or rude. He doesn't insist on His own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He he believes all things. He hopes all things. He has endured all things. In Jesus, the love of God has brought healing to our sin and our brokenness. Should we be surprised that for us to to achieve that healing in our human relationships, that it would work any differently? See, maybe it isn't such a surprise after all that that Paul thinks love is the most central thing for the church to embrace. Because love does what no amount of spiritual gifts, no amount of, of wealth or generosity could ever do. Love has reconciled us to God. Because it was in love that God sent His Son to us and for us. And this love of God is the one thing that will endure forever. Listen to what Paul says in verse 8. It says, "'Love never ends. "'As for prophecies, they will pass away. "'As for tongues, they will cease. "'As for knowledge, it will pass away. "'For we know in parts, and we prophesy in part, "'but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away.'" Love never ends. All of these other things, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, all the spiritual gifts, even our wealth and generosity will one day pass away, but love will endure forever. That's why Paul, he sees love, not gifts, as the mark of Christian maturity. To obsess over gifts, that's the childish ways. To embrace the way of love, that's the way of maturity. And so he says, very simply, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Have you ever wondered why that is? What is it that makes love greater than even faith and hope? I mean, for Lutherans, we're, we're all about faith, right? By grace through faith. Right? Faith is that gift of God that that trusts in His promises. Those promises that say that we are truly forgiven and redeemed from sin and death. Right? Faith, shouldn't that be number one? Or or what about hope? I mean, hope, that's the watching and, and waiting, the expectation of all that God has promised us. Hope is the expectation of of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. I mean, hope, if, if that's not number one, it should at least be number two. What is it that makes love greater than even faith and hope? I think it could be a number of things, but there's one that I can say for certain. And it's the simple fact that love will never end. You see, faith and hope one day will actually pass away. Right? When we are raised with Christ on the last day, when we live with Him in His kingdom, when we see Him with our own eyes, what need will there be for faith? Right? Faith is is in what is unseen. But when we see what was unseen, there won't be need for faith. Faith. And it's the same for hope. Hope is in something that's yet to come, but when that thing that we're hoping for and expecting comes, hope will pass away. Faith and hope will one day pass away. But not love. The love of God that we have now is that same love that we will dwell in for all eternity. The love of God that drove Him to create all things. The love of God that became incarnate in Jesus Christ and drove Him to bear our cross so that He could redeem all things. The love of God that promises to raise us again from the dead. That will endure for all eternity. When everything else passes away, Love will remain. You know, I remember once sitting with, a, with an elderly couple. And as I sat with them, uh, you could notice that, uh, that time and, and age had, had taken its toll on their bodies. And, and due to Alzheimer's, the, the wife's memory had, had begun to, to go. She could barely remember the the faces of her family members. She couldn't recall uh, the years that she had spent with her husband. But I remember sitting with this couple and, and recognizing that amidst all the things that she could not remember, there was something that she could remember. I saw it on her face when her husband walked in the room I saw it in the way that, that she would bury her head in his chest when he would put his arm around her. When she could remember nothing else, she still remembered the love of her husband. And I remember the, her husband sharing with me that even though these years were, were difficult years, by the grace of God, his love for her continues to grow each and every day. When everything else passes away, when our bodies, our our health, our skills and abilities, when our spiritual gifts and our generosity and our wealth pass away, one thing will remain. Our God and the love that he has for us. That love that He's poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And even when we struggle to remember Him, His love for us will continue to grow. May you turn toward that love. May that love that our God has for you bring you healing. And in that love, may you find life now and for all eternity. Amen? Amen.